The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. It's made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. State and local governments spend about $4 trillion each year. That's trillion with a T. Did you ever ask yourself, where does all that money come from? And where does it go? Who manages it? And what do citizens and taxpayers have to show for it? In this podcast, we explore the budgets, bonds, and bureaucrats at the heart of state and local government finance. This is the Public Money Pod. This is the Public Money Pod. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by journalist, researcher, bona fide public money wonk, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome. Thanks, Justin. And I am coming off of a weekend of apple cider pressing, so I still smell a little little bit like apples. Yes, uh, Liz comes to us from the Shire in rural Maryland, (laughs) and so apparently they grow apples in the Shire (laughs) in Maryland. (laughs) So today we're uh, talking about public money specifically as it relates to people. One of our key ideas here for this podcast is that we're we're talking about the people who manage public money, but also the extent to which public money pays the salaries and benefits of the people who deliver all of those state and local government services. In fact, depending on your numbers, it can be anywhere between uh, 70 to 80% of the budget for a typical state or local government is in some ways connected to people, whether it's compensation or benefits or retirement or whatever it might be. And so it's good to talk about the people and how we go about paying them. And this also dovetails nicely to one of our themes here these last couple episodes, which has been talking about this influx of federal money into the state and local sector. And so we want to talk today about that kind of intersection of where the public sector workforce is at the moment, how we're paying for it, and how this influx of federal money is changing how we pay for it and what sorts of services we might deliver. We're going to be joined in a little bit by Josh Franzel from Mission Square Research, who has been been doing work on that issue for a long time now. And so we're excited to hear what he has to say. Before we do that, Liz, you've written uh, quite a bit now about these questions about the public sector workforce and how we pay for it. I wonder if you could set the context just by giving us some of the high level takeaways from some of your recent work here. You bet. So at the beginning of the pandemic, as we, as we all know, a lot of people were, had to be laid off, you know, and a lot of that was an education sector, um, you know, folks with in-person jobs, a bunch of people left too. So I remember at the time just being astounded because it was something like around a million jobs within you know, minutes, it seemed like, right, but it it was a couple of months, but it was, um, you know, compared with what happened during the Great Recession, we all thought that was really bad. But I guess in retrospect, at least the big, (laughs) the the drop in employment happened over the course of what a year. And this was, this was just ridiculous. So, so, you know, and then it's been building back, but I think we're still down about 600,000 or so um, jobs at this point, with no sign that we're actually kind of going to get back to that pre-pandemic level. 
because people have continued to leave. You've had more people coming on, but you've also had people continuing to leave even as the pandemic you know, uh, effects have, I suppose, evened out. Um, and so, and, and this has obviously been going on in the public sector too, which is you know, why we call it the big quit, the great resignation. Um, I, I looked at, um, in some of my writing earlier this year, I looked at the great resignation in, in local government in particular, and we're gonna hear a bit later from Josh on you know, kind of how that shakes out uh, for finance departments. But some of the biggest groups that are leaving are in, in public safety. And, you know, some of right. that is just, it's like this culmination of pandemic stress, you know, what's happened with, you know, Black Lives Matter and, you know, the, the, the back and forth against that. And then just people are, people, people are old enough to retire, so they retire. And, and so there's places like Seattle, a lot of major cities say they're having this, you know, public safety crisis right now, uh, and they can't get people to, to, to fill those positions. I heard from, from some friends in Seattle just over the weekend that their uh, Seattle Police Department is at staffing levels, if I may or may not have this exactly correct, comparable to where they were like in the late 70s. And they're down hundreds of officers at the moment and having a really, really hard time hiring folks. And this is against the backdrop of a population that's growing very quickly in, in that city and having to then compete for talent with a lot of the suburban jurisdictions where, you know, where the work is, is to some people more attractive in so many ways. So yeah, Seattle, very good case study of exactly what you're describing here. That sounds right from what I've heard. I mean, Seattle is one of the places, I, I think the last thing I saw it was in the, you know, like. 30, 40% of the, their police force has open slots. So that's a huge deal. Um, <clears throat> and this is this lack of, it's not just people leaving, but we can't find people to hire, period. Not even, it's not even about hiring fast enough at this point. It's just about, there's so many places that have said they don't even have enough people applying for the open jobs that they have. You know, and this is like the number one issue I hear about when I talk to anybody who's in local government right now. If I ask them what their biggest priorities are or challenges, this 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 comes up. So that that's a thing. Uh, <laughs> and then I recently, more recently, wrote about uh, okay, so what are local governments doing about this in terms of how are they using their 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 American Rescue Plan funds? And interestingly, I found. So they're spending, they're using a ton of their funding, about 600 million so far, and that's just in 2021. We don't have the 2022 data yet. 600 million so far on stuff that could be called, you know, workforce development related. That's like anything from building from housing to you know, rec recruitment campaigns, buying ads. So it really, it's all over the place, but it's it's in that sphere. So that's a lot of money. There's, and that's in addition to about 500 million uh, that local state and local governments were awarded from the Department of Congress. That that's also workforce development specific mm -hmm. grant money. Mm -hmm. So now we're like at over a billion dollars already. But when you kind of peel peel back the layers of that onion, only only <laughs> about a, a hundred million ish. Uh, of that money, it, it, the American Rescue Plan money, is specifically on public sector rehiring initiatives. And so, I mean, that's still a lot of money, but it, it when you look at it in that context, it really kind of tells you where the energy and attention is in terms of how governments are viewing their role in this overall great resignation. Um, and then kind of diving, looking at what exactly they're spending on for the public sector. And 
I think you and I would agree. This is a good thing. They're not just like using this one time money to rehire rehire positions and then you know right right? right. so most of them aren't doing that there are some that are but it's stuff like um, hiring bonuses back pay that kind of thing Uh, money on you know spending on recruitment campaigns new equipment uh, that kind of stuff so all of that kind of makes this interesting picture of this is something local governments are really worried about but it's not like they're spending a ton of money on trying to to go back to what it was that they used to be. Right, right. Yeah, it's a, you know, it, the, an important piece of the context here too, I think, and I think you've written about this as well, is that when, the, when COVID hit, state and local workforces had just gotten back to their levels in roughly 2007, right? I mean, and so it, it took... 13 years or thereabouts to recover fully from the effects of the Great Recession and what that meant for the public sector workforce. You have a lot of people who stuck with government work during that time, saw their raises happening much slower, perhaps than their private sector counterparts, saw those benefits maybe holding fast, but not keeping pace maybe with what they were hoping to see relative to their private sector counterparts. And so suddenly then you get to COVID and these federal dollars can be used in lots of different ways. It seems like doing little things just to kind of keep pace and make clear that there wasn't going to be any backsliding into what it was during the Great Recession recovery seemed like a really high priority for a lot of jurisdictions. And so you could do that with like a little bit of investment, but it doesn't, as you said, it it doesn't seems relatively small in the context of the size and and scale and dollars involved in the public sector workforce, any idea on what that, on what that's about? Is there reluctance to use federal money that way? Because there's concerns about, you know, scrutiny and, you know, publicizing using federal money in that way, or is there, are there other sort of structural barriers that, that we can think of that would get in the way of a, a city government saying, let's use a lot of these dollars for workforce retention. I, I do think there is some concern over, over being able to afford that after the money runs out. I mean, I think thankfully a, a lot of places are concerned about their financial sustainability after the, you know, the, the lovely gift from the federal government uh, goes away. Um, I mean, it's funny because there's been such what shell shock after the great recession. Right. right, and, right. and a lot of those, a lot of those people are now retiring, but they were around at the beginning of COVID. They remember what it was like at the great, after the great recession, when just everything kind of plummeted and the federal government kind of flicked money down mm-hmm. in the direction mm-hmm. of state and local governments, but was not, the backstop that people really wanted it to be. And so when that appeared to happen this time around, it's, it's kind of hard to trust that, A, that that's how long is that going to last? And B, you know, I think a lot of people have been trained at this point to cut services, cut, you know, do the cuts, you know, reshuffle money, but not to, not to make the mistake of using one-time funds for something that is a, a you know, ongoing expense. And I think that's probably the biggest factor because it is super clear in the ARPA rules that you can use this to rehire, mm-hmm. to rehire people. And like I said, a few are, uh, and mostly what I found is, uh, like rehiring police officers, that kind of thing, or some are hiring positions, but sunsetting them. So again, that tells you that right. people right. are right. worried about like, we, we don't want to use this money past, you know, when we're allowed to use it. Cause we don't, we don't want to put the, the bill. We don't know what our finances are going to be like in three years, four years. Right. Right. 
yeah, that's really interesting in, in a weird way. Uh, part of the legacy of the Great Recession is reminding <laughs> us of that you know, really fundamental rule of budgeting. It's one thing we teach on day one is do not use one-time revenues for ongoing expenses. And this is a very good example of exactly that. So maybe it is that state and local finance managers are heeding the advice that we've been giving them for a long time. And what we're seeing is you know, the effects of that as it plays out in, in personnel budgets. Okay, so now it's time to welcome our guest for today. And to set this up, it's important to make, I think, a couple high-level contextual points here. One is that in particular, you know, about one-fifth of state and local governments are in the middle of their biggest ever retirement wave, while four in 10 believe their peak in retirements will happen sometime in the next few years. And that's according to the latest workforce survey data released by the Mission Square Research Institute, that's formerly the Center for State and Local Government Excellence at the International City County Management Association's Retirement Corporation, ICMARC. The Institute has been tracking employee sentiment since the beginning of the pandemic, and our guest today is its managing director, Dr. Joshua Franzel. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Justin. I appreciate the time to talk to you and Liz. Yeah, Josh, we're really excited to have you. I, for one, have been, um, I want to take this moment now to thank Mission Square Research Institute for doing all of this at, since the beginning of the pandemic. It has been, as a writer, it has been incredibly helpful and useful. Um, and, and I think everyone I talk to, I mean, it, in local government especially, is just really needs you guys to be doing this. So um, as you know, you're providing a valuable service, but mm -hmm. I just want to Make, make that on the record for the podcast. So, you know, we've been tracking what you guys have been doing since the beginning of the pandemic in this area, but um, can you first start off with just saying, you know, let us know what are the latest figures on public employee, on the public employee workforce, and how does it compare to the beginning? Uh, and, and tell us what are the bigger, biggest factors driving these changes? Yeah, sure. So um, it's been a roller coaster ride for states and localities, especially since the, the start of the uh, uh, the declaration of the public health emergency back in, in, in February 2020 timeframe. And as with the rest of uh, uh, the labor force overall, uh, there have been some highlights and also some challenges. Um, overall, you still see state government employment below its sort of peak uh, peak employment in February 2020, um, still down about 62,000 jobs uh, when you look between February 2020 and, and July of 2022. Um, similarly, local governments are down a little under 600,000 jobs still during that same time frame. But when you sort of peel back the layers of the, the onion a bit, state education, for example, has rebounded completely. State hospitals have rebounded completely. But the other major industries within the sector are still below where they were in February 2020. So that's the general administration at the state level, that's uh, education at the local level, utilities at the local level, transportation at the local level, hospitals at the local level, and general administration at the local level. So it's sort of a, a mixed picture in, in terms of some, some aspects of the, of the state and local sector have rebounded, others uh, um, have yet to, to come back to their, their February 2020 peaks. What's what are the driving the differences here? I know one of the one of the biggest, most consistent 
factors that the survey work has found is that people continue to feel stressed and anxious. And uh, is that what's part of the difference here? Well, that's certainly one aspect. And we've been um, polling public employees approximately every six months since the beginning of the pandemic, asking the whole range of questions around how they feel about working in the public sector. And there certainly are some more qualitative aspects that, that are impacting their feelings about working in the public sector from, as you talked about, stress and and concerns about um, their working in the public sector during a pandemic. There are also some other drivers uh, related to compensation of benefits, which I'm happy to go into. But I think more generally, um, one of the challenges that governments are facing as they are in a position to hire, they need to hire, but they're dealing with hyper-competition for talent with other sectors. They're dealing with constrained compensation structures that are, are not as flexible, perhaps, as other sectors, such as like the private sector. Um, underlying demographics that we knew were going to play out, uh, age demographics that we knew were going to play out, but that are playing themselves out in terms of baby boomers retiring at a higher rate now relative to, let's say, post-Great Recession. And so just, just the demographics behind sort of the age distribution of workers, those are three, but there are other reasons as well why governments, states and localities are having a hard time recruiting and retaining folks. Definitely. That makes a lot of sense. And, and speaking of the of the recruitment and retention and the salary and payroll uh, piece of that in particular. Of course, this is the public money pod. So we're always curious about what this means for state and local budgets. So when you, when you think about, I guess kind of a two-part question, when you think about the trends that you just described, you know, I could see there being some advantage and disadvantage if you're running a public sector budget, running a state or local budget. Um, on the one hand, you're having to pay people more to keep them, but on the other hand, it, there's fewer positions being filled. And so I can see how that might affect payroll on the other side. I was wondering, first question, if you could just talk kind of high level about what all this has meant for state and local budgeting. And then a second piece of this that's of particular interest to us here as well is how have these trends that you've described played out specifically for people who manage public money, you know, that is state and mm -hmm. local finance departments, budget offices, are they seeing the same kind of retirement trends? Are they seeing the same kinds of retention concerns as a local government and and uh, state government writ large sure so if i could answer if i can answer your second question first um what we've seen uh, every year for the past uh, decade plus we've been doing an annual workforce survey with uh the international public management association for human resources which are essentially the the hr directors at the local level and some at the state level and then also the NASPE, the national association of state personnel executives um, typically the top two HR directors in, in each state. And, and we've been asked, we ask a whole range of questions around sort of what positions there have, uh, these HR directors are having a hard time filling, uh, what, uh, uh, what are some of the challenges on the recruitment side. And while we don't ask based on sort of the, the structure of a department per se, when we ask, you know, over the past year, what positions have HR directors have had a hard time filling, Accounting positions, 49% of HR directors report having a hard time filling accounting positions over the past year. Business and financial operations positions, 47% of HR directors have a hard time filling those positions. And so that's sort of like some examples of specific positions. And then more generally, when, when we ask, so looking ahead and looking more broadly, what generalizable skill sets are most needed for new hires? At the top, uh, one uh, near the top of the list, finance uh, uh, generalizable skill sets 
but 19% of HR directors listed in the top uh, top eight position uh, generalizable skill sets needed uh, for for new hires. And so there certainly is a demand there. Um, uh, now, now when it comes to sort of the the budget piece of adequate compensation and and benefits. Um, now, I know uh, both of you have written extensively about the the two tranches of federal funds that have come into uh, uh, to localities, states and localities over the past uh, year and plus, and then also the relatively healthy tax and fee revenues that governments are realizing, especially over the past like half half year to a year, um, if not longer. Um, so th they're in a position to to hire. And to, and to 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 increase um, compensation and and, and benefit um, compensation, but in some instances, you're dealing you're starting from a position where pay structures haven't been updated to account for inflation in some environments for a decade, and so you're having to bring bring up uh, compensation from a from a, a suboptimal position in terms of of, of 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 where they were starting from, and then on on the on the benefit side, a lot of the retirement and health benefits, especially in the wake of the Great Recession, were re reformed and reduced in forms of benefit generosity. So where benefits used to be truly a strategic uh, advantage for the public sector, it still is, but it's just not to the same extent perhaps it once was. So those are two aspects that I would like to highlight as well. All right. Right. So <laughs> if you are a graduate student in public administration or public policy listening to the pod. I think that was a pretty good commercial for taking all the budgeting <laughs> and finance courses and accounting courses you can find because those are, have always been and can appear to be these days, even more difficult positions to fill. And I will say, I want to add one other thing is that when you look at all a lot of the hard to fill positions, there's also a story going on in terms of large versus small um, public employers across the board. Small employers, and we define that as those that are less than 500 FTEs, are having a hard time filling positions at a much greater um, rate than, than, than larger employers. And so I think not only is it the sector having a hard time recruiting and retaining more generally, but especially small employers that perhaps don't have the fiscal flexibility are having an even harder time filling positions. Yeah, I hear that anecdotally over and over again, too. I mean, and, and if you think about it, that's been the case, you know, small versus large with a lot of other, you know, resources, not just human resources. One of the things that I've been curious about is, and you kind of touched on it a little bit, Justin, with, with, your, with your advertisement there, but um, how are governments responding to this, you know, recruitment-wise, you know, with offering flexible benefits? You know, I personally am super interested in, in remote work and and I hear all sorts of things, you know, across the board from people I chat with in local government about, you know, what's going on with remote work and other benefits. So um, I'd love to hear your, you know, 3000 foot view of, you know, what those changes are, are, are entailing. Now, and then as we get farther post pandemic, uh, this is one of the most interesting times to be focusing on sort of the, the business of government and how states and localities are managing the workforces. Um, there's a lot of interest in redefining the nature of how and where work gets done. And so we saw this even before the pandemic with our workforce surveys. I'm not saying it's a complete sea change in terms of they're, they're enabling all positions or all types of positions to, to work from home or work in a hybrid fashion, but you're seeing the number of positions that are eligible to be hybrid or remote increasing and the number of individuals that are within those positions increasing in number overall. 
And you, you also are seeing, Liz, you mentioned um, sort of non-traditional benefits. Um, you know, certainly retirement and healthcare are, are key benefits and are the backbone of compensation packages, but you're seeing more both governments and then in, uh, prospective employees and, and employees that are already in the workforce really focusing on what other benefits should be considered to sort of round out the overall compensation package. So by non-traditional benefits, think of a student loan repayment, for example, or subsidized childcare, subsidized commuting, uh, these sort of things. And while it's still a, a, a small minority of governments that are actually implementing these programs, these non-traditional benefit programs, if they're increasing in number and, and the, interest in the, the interest in these non-traditional benefits continues to increase in our surveys. What is the average age roughly for, for local government, for public servants? 45, 47, something like that. But uh, the state and local sector tends to be three to five years older than their private sector counterparts. So as a entity, they tend to skew older than their private sector counterparts. Yeah, that makes makes sense. I mean, you want to recruit people who at least have maybe a decade or so of working years ahead of them. <laughs> Josh, when you going back to what you were saying a little bit ago, <clears throat> just to follow up on that, on these sort of intangible kinds of benefits that that can be offered. And granted, something like childcare is far from intangible. That's a <laughs> that's a very tangible benefit. But it seems like at some level, a lot of this has to do with uh, government being willing to adapt and sending a strong message that not only can we offer the kinds of traditional benefits that we've offered retirement in particular being the backbone of that, but it seems like a part of the strategy here for a lot of state and local governments is to be able to say, we can do what we've always done well and offer some of what our private sector competitors can offer. And as long as it's just enough to sort of signal that we get that that's important and we get that that's the kind of thing that this new workforce is looking for, then we're able to do that. And at the same time, I suppose you could see a situation where if you're not going to be able to offer those same types of particularly flexible benefits at the rate that the private sector is able to offer them, then you may be spending some money and not getting much of, an, of a return on investment there. Are you seeing anything in, in that space to suggest that for those who are doing it, that just, just a little bit of that has kind of an outsized impact in terms of recruitment and retention? You know, we haven't formally done analyses looking at at that direct relationship yet. But um, anecdotally, when we um, when we've talked with governments that are helping with uh, saving for a first home or helping to, to 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 shepherd their their employees through sort of the home buying process, there've been there's been a lot of anecdotal successes that we've heard in our we did a workforce summit. Workforce 2037, right before the pandemic, where there were some of these innovative strategies that are being implemented, where anecdotally we're hearing some really success stories, not just on on, on housing, that housing is one example, but on uh, financial wellness, for example, really helping uh, rounding out financial wellness programs so that employees feel comfortable with their personal finances to the extent possible, that reduces uh, absenteeism, that reduces distractions at work. Anecdotally, you've heard a lot. We, we, we haven't yet done sort of analysis, formal analysis, looking at sort of the direct relationship, but um, it's, it's a really good point you raised. And I will say one thing we haven't talked about in terms of in response to the recruitment and retention challenges, and I don't want to overplay this, but we are continuing to see, um, especially, I know this is focused on sort of the public finance realm, the role of gig workers in filling the gaps, at least temporarily. It's, it's still a very small portion of the roles and responsibilities are being filled with gig workers. But over the past series of years, we found in counting positions, HR directors say they're filling 
uh, 13% of their positions for a short period of time with gig workers, uh, business and financial operations, 6%. So it's still, it's still a small percentage, but as a stopgap, while you're having our time recruiting and retaining folks, I would also keep your eye on, on, on sort of the role of gig workers and the opportunities that come with them and also the challenges that come as well. Yeah, for sure. I could see that being especially useful with all of these temporary intergovernmental dollars that we're seeing flow into particularly states and localities. We could argue that in some ways, it's good budgeting to to plan to hire people on a year contract or two-year contract mm -hmm. as opposed to bringing them on as permanent employees. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, then, you know, again, to the extent that public sector work is about longevity and being part of a culture and seeing the benefits of for the community of all the work that you do, can you get that with the with gig workers? That's a really interesting exactly. set of questions. One quick question too, when we think about, we've, we've kind of hinted at this, but it's probably worth asking directly. When we think about, you know, what all of these workforce trends that you're describing have, what the implications might be for just the way that government work is done going forward, right? There's mm -hmm. certainly, you know, some questions here about how are we going to deliver services? And mm -hmm. we've talked on the podcast a couple of times now about investments in technology that might enable you know, a little more automation or require fewer hands-on for certain kinds of government processes. You know, when you, based on what you're seeing right now, can we expect there to be more of those kinds of changes and just the way that state and local services are delivered as a response to the fact that the skill set that's needed, you know, may or may not be there. And that might kind of force some innovation that wasn't going to happen pre-pandemic on its own. Yeah, sure. So I think that some of the trends are just uh, have been accelerated because of the pandemic. But I'm glad you brought that th this part of the conversation up because um, when you look at BLS projections for between 2030, 2020, and 2030, it really is a story of the continuation of just the increased number of knowledge workers in the public sector and and automation uh, because you have. You know, some of the, the occupations, and I know this is a public finance uh, oriented podcast, but if you look at some of the, the top positions that are expected with the most growth, you have like medical and health science managers, management analysts, uh, forensic science technicians, software developers, and, and uh, software quality analysts. These are all knowledge positions, right? But on the flip side, those that are expected to contract the most over the next uh, decade, parking enforcement workers, word processors and typists, switchboard operators, uh, executive secretaries and administrative assistants. Uh, and a lot of that contraction is due to the adoption, uh, adoption of IT solutions, automation. And so I think that not only do we keep our, we need to keep our eye on the fact that you have these trends happening, but it's, 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 they're happening because of some of these innovations that you talk about, Justin, that are impacting the, the nature of how work is done. But at the same time, I would encourage your, your your readers to take a look at our diversity, equity, inclusion research that we released over the past half year or so. Those expansions and contractions are going to affect different demographic groups differently. And I think that if, if state and local governments are going to continue to be employers of choice, they need to also focus on how they can support uh, their workers that perhaps are in positions that are be, that are experiencing reductions. How do you retrain, retool uh, these individuals so that they could continue to thrive in the public sector employment? That's something to keep an eye on as well. 
I'm so glad you brought uh, diversity, equity, equity, and inclusion into this because that's, I mean, I've seen more places it seems like are hiring or, or you know, maybe reassigning someone to be a DEI director. And, mm-hmm. and the idea of, are we in a workforce crisis? Because there's a ton of groups, you know, that are underemployed, like people on, on the autism spectrum or, you know, and people with visible or, or not visible disabilities. And so um, military wives was a conversation that came up somewhere I was recently. I, I definitely think that's, that's going to be an interesting kind of demographics trend to, to watch. Absolutely. And I think it, it's like a, a two-layer conversation there because it helps if, if you are focused on that, it helps with retention of those that are already mm-hmm. in your ranks that might be more, more willing to stay if they feel accepted and embraced by the organization. And then on the recruitment side, it really helps position governments to go out and reach out to communities that perhaps wouldn't, wouldn't have considered a position in local government or state government um, you know, to, to help really achieve high quality workforce that, that, that produces high quality services. So I think it's, but there's a, both a recruitment and a retention piece to this. So Josh, thanks again for all of this wonderful information. And can you tell us a little bit before you go about what's kind of coming down for Mission Square Research Institute and what you guys are expect to be doing? Yeah, sure. So a couple, uh, a couple of projects that I wanted to, to make note of is one is, um, um, as I mentioned before, we've been doing polling every six months of state and local workers throughout the course of the pandemic. Currently, right now, we're fielding sort of what we consider to be sort of our, our first like post-pandemic survey of sort of where the where state and local workers are as we emerge from the pandemic, and we're asking a whole range of questions to get their sen- a sense of sort of what they what their feelings are about working in the public sector, their future career outlooks, but then also factoring in aspects like inflation housing costs, um, and other more timely topics to see how those larger issues are impacting state and local workers either uniquely or just as other other workers in in the broader economy. We're also going to be releasing an updated uh, survey project that looks at sort of uh, what financial wellness programs in the public sector look like in 2022. We were one of the first organizations back in 2018, 2019 timeframe to really dive into what um, financial wellness programs tailored to the state and local sector look like. And, and we surveyed a lot of localities around the country. So we're trying to see what's changed since, what what are the priorities, what are the areas of focus, uh, you know, especially since we did the first initial uh, survey work there. And then I will say we, we continue to work with our partners at Boston College's Center for Retirement Research, NASRA, the National Association of State Retirement Administrators, GFOA, the Government Finance Officers Association, and our institute continue to uh, collect data via the Public Plans Database, publicplansdata.org, which tracks uh, state and local pension plans. And we're now we're adding defined contribution plans. So I'd encourage your uh, listeners to visit publicplansdata.org. We continue to update that on a quarterly basis. So those are just a, a few things that are coming down the road. So not much. You've got plenty of time for vacation, right? <laughs> there you go. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd say that was a good one. Appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. This has been great. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Josh. <laughs> Likewise. Thanks for taking the time. That's sure thing.
Well, thanks again to Josh Franzel from the Mission Square Research Institute for a great conversation about workforce trends and how we're going to finance the public sector workforce of the future. Always great to hear and definitely more great work coming from them to look for in the future. Now it's time for our extra credit segment. Hi, this is Almendra. My question is, why don't state and local government budgets do a better job of talking about return on investment? Why do they focus so much on money spent rather than what we get for all that money? Thank you. Well, that is a terrific question and one that often comes up, especially from our friends in the private sector who say, you know, government seems to just keep doing the same thing year in and year out with its budget. And it's very difficult sometimes to sort of get at the the ROI question, right? The return on investment question for state and local government budgets. There's a couple of reasons why we we see the same kinds of patterns in state and local budgets. And we should say at the outset that there's some real important exceptions to this. There's plenty of jurisdictions that you can point to that are doing really innovative things with performance-based budgeting, you know, budgeting for results, budgeting for outcomes that we could do several shows just on that. And maybe we will, because they're probably worth yeah, talking probably about. Should. But when we think about uh, the the sort of typical or median government that's doing the same type of usually line item budgeting and budgeting the same basic relationship between inputs and outputs year in and year out, there tends to be a couple of reasons for that. I think one that's probably in some ways the most important is entirely consistent with what we've talked about here today, which is that so much of what we're doing when we're budgeting in state and local government is we're budgeting for people. And people may work across multiple programs. They may have lots of different types of responsibilities, especially when you go into smaller jurisdictions where you might have a department of one or two people and they're working on many different kinds of projects um, all at the same time. And so we have to you know, be thinking about what that means for outcomes and results. But in doing so, you're having to essentially ask someone to think about all the different things they're doing in the course of a day and all the different ways that their time is spent. And sometimes that's a realistic exercise and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it actually can take more time and effort to track what you're doing throughout the day than to actually do that work. And so there's been some real barriers to thinking about the way that people spend their time in government and given how important time and personnel spending related to time is, yeah, that's a, that's a huge barrier. I think there's also a really kind of a conceptual issue here too in thinking about the relationship between inputs and outcomes in government and that so much of what we do in state and local government really can't be quantified in a concise, intuitive way. If you think about somebody working in in something like, you know, juvenile justice, uh, you know, you're thinking about the goal is to, you know, take juveniles who have been in the system and 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 get them out of the system, right? Keep them from recidivating, keep them from, from remaining in the system. And that might be something that takes 10 or 15 or 20 years to unfold. And it can be really difficult sometimes to track, you know, the relationship between the work you're doing today and some outcome that we care about. And that gets even more messy when we get into preventing other kinds of things, right? We're learning firsthand what happens right now when you don't have, you know, say effective water quality systems in place, or when you don't have reliable uh, public utilities in place that can deliver water and power under stressful circumstances. We sure learn a lot of what happens when those systems fail. What does it mean to keep those systems running? And what's the relationship between money spent and system reliability? And so for a lot of governments, it can be really difficult to, to sort of think about what it is that we're getting for those dollars 
in a way that is clear and intuitive and can be quantified the way that we can say our friends in the private sector. And again, that's not to say that there aren't good examples of, of exactly that happening because there are, but I think the best answer to that question is that governments budget the way they budget for a reason and that it's doing it for the most part, a reasonably good job of providing the kinds of information that policymakers need to be able to answer the questions that they want to answer about how they want to spend money this year and next year and in the relatively near term. That's the the sort of professor answer to that question. Liz, you've looked at this as well. Uh, what uh, what do you want to add or contradict in what I just said? <laughs> well, first of all, I think you I just gave us about four or five fabulous episode ideas. So that was a little bit of a preview, I think, of what's to come this <laughs> season. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's it's funny because. I really kind of perked up when you said, you know, the time and effort to track what you're doing that personally for me, I literally have this list, this reminder list, you know, as someone who is a freelance consultant, I mean, the last thing I really want to do is keep track of my time and bill people and all that. But if I don't, I don't get paid. Right. So it's just like one of those, it's, it's a pain in the butt kind of thing. So Trent, you know, multiply that across thousands of people, you know, across local, and then add in the bureaucracy of government and, and Voila, there you have it. So that is a huge aspect is just the time it takes to track time is, is a huge barrier. And then it makes me think also of what we saw in the last uh, year ish uh, since the American rescue plan has been passed is a bit more emphasis on you know, what, what should we, that question of what should we be spending our money on and not just people within governments asking that of themselves because they think they know all the answers and and people in local government have put it to me that way. So I'm not trying to disparage anyone, but a lot of times folks in government can, can get this, you know, feeling of like, well, we see how everything works. So here's how the money, here's where the money needs to go. Um, And then they go out and tell the community, and this, with ARPA, with the American Rescue Plan, it, the process worked almost backwards, right? They, they spent a right. lot of time just asking the community what they needed, what they thought, what their experience has been, and then building at least their ARPA spending around some of, of those ideas, you know? And it's not this like free will, it's not like, you know, giving citizens oh, this theoretical $500 and where would you spend it kind of thing. It's really that kind of organic, thoughtful, engagement of of the people who you you're trying to help anyway with with this money that you have and it's not necessarily the be all end all but it is um you know you factor that into the other uh decisions that you know need to happen within government problem with that though like as you said took a lot of time took a lot of effort um i suppose that i mean there are ways to make that to use AI to make that process more seamless. But a lot of people that I talked to were using spreadsheets and having these meetings. And I mean, it's just a lot of human human power that's required to do that. So to think about the budgeting process and doing that every year or every other year, I mean, that alone takes up a lot of time, if not all your time. For sure. And one of the interesting things we saw, particularly during the pandemic, was with everything being done you know, via Zoom and Teams and Skype, et cetera, <laughs> there were you know, that that opened up a whole new world of public engagement, right? It did the the idea that we're going to have the annual budget meeting uh, at one o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon, and whichever citizens can show up are the ones who get to participate. You know, that's still the norm in a lot of places, but as so much of the work of the public sector has now 
so so much of the of the public facing you know open meetings type of work of states and localities has moved into virtual spaces now that opens up a whole new channel of participation around exactly the kinds of you know priority setting exercises and citizen engagement that that used to be done in person and used to be done you know pretty either inefficiently or at least privilege those who have the time and and the ability to to directly participate so that'll be interesting to see how that shapes all of that going forward and i think in a way the experiment that you that you just described with the federal money has has yielded some important lessons about what to do and what not to do when you really do want to try to get that that kind of input and you know, we'll see where where we can go from there but there's so there's, there's definitely i think the stage is set for thinking about state and local budgeting in different kinds of ways. And now it's up to jurisdictions to take the initiative and go with it. Great question and great answers as always. If you have a question that you would like to submit for extra credit, send us a voice memo to publicmoneypod at uchicago.edu. Thank you, Liz. Pleasure as always. Thanks. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. To learn more about the center, check out our website, municipalfinance.uchicago.edu. If you'd like to ask a question for our extra credit segment, send a voice memo to publicmoneypod at uchicago.edu. To see more of Liz Farmer's work, visit her website, farmersfieldonline.com, and her Substack, which is substack.lizfarmer.com. And you can also find her at Twitter at LizFarmerTweets. And thanks, as always, to our esteemed producer, Eric Gaber. If you like the podcast, be sure to follow us, drop a review, and tell your network. That's all for now. We'll catch you next time.